All right, what up, everybody? Welcome to Oasis. I am so glad that you are here, that you joined us tonight. Really, what we're doing tonight is uh, the second half of a very, very long sermon. That if you were here this morning, you heard part one of a series, uh, a kind of mini-series of how do we talk about our faith. And tonight we'll be in part two. And if you missed it, you can always go watch back on YouTube, Grace Points, uh, uh, YouTube, and check that out. But otherwise, I want to just fill you in quick so that you can catch up with us tonight. The first thing you need to know is that context is key to effective communication. I have said it a million times and I'll say it a bunch more tonight, but context is key, context is key, context is key. If we want to be effective communicators in whatever place we find ourselves, we must recognize the context. And when I say context, I primarily mean two things. First, it's where you are. And second, it's who you're talking to. Context is location and its audience. When we recognize our location and our audience, it changes and it can affect our communication. Let me give you an example. Got any dog people out there? You just you just love your dog, right? You you come home to your dog. You're excited to see your dog. Yeah, I figured we a lot of people like dogs, right? So this is my thing with dogs. Is some of you who love your dog, you talk to your dog. And I'm not talking just like normal dog talk, like sit, lay, lay roll over. I, I get that, right? That, that makes sense to me. I'm talking you talk, talk to your dog. Like you talk to your dog like it's a human being. You have full-blown conversations with your dog. You get off of work, you come home, and you start asking your dog how its day was. Like let me tell you, it just slept for the last eight hours, <laughs> You come home, you start telling your dog how cute it is, you start telling your dog how you missed it, you start waiting for your dog to talk back to you. Like, it's a little weird, but I get it, okay? How you spend your time with your dog, that's fine. But I have to draw the line somewhere. And it's not at the dog talk, it's at the dog voice. The dog voice kills me. Because you can't just ask, how was your day? It's, how was your day? Right? You're such a cute little doggo. You're such a cute little boy or girl. I could just eat you up. Right? That's, that's how you, some of you people talk to your dogs. And it's weird. I have to draw the line somewhere. It's this dog voice where it's just, I, I can't do it. But now let's change the context for a second. Instead of you being at home with your dog, let's say you're at work on a Monday morning. Your boss walks into your office to start having a meeting and you go full dog voice on them. You start saying, how are you? How is your day? You're such a cute girl. You're such a cute boy. Oh, I could just eat you up. I could just, no, right? You wouldn't do that. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's super weird. At least I hope you don't do that. If you do, let's talk. But like, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because the context has changed. You were in a different place, talking to a different person, and because of that, your communication changes. And that was our first fundamental point today, is that when we were looking at the book of Acts and looking specifically at chapter 17, we saw Paul's communication changed based on his context. Where you are and who you're talking to changes how you talk. It started with Paul communicating in a sacred context, a place where God was already worshipped and scripture was already, already valued. And in a sacred context, Paul spoke to the people using scripture. But then Paul moves into a secular context. And in a secular context, it's the opposite of sacred. God was not already worshipped and scripture was not valued. And so Paul's 
communication changes based on his new context. Instead, in a secular context, Paul sees the needs of people and he speaks to their needs. He does this first by slowing down and observing his new context. He slows down enough to see the people, to see their needs, and to provide solutions to those needs in Jesus. He gave them answers to their already existing problems. Instead of explicitly speaking scripture, Paul is implicitly shaped by it and it flows out of him in a way this new context can understand. The last thing I challenged this morning was that as a church, I believe we need to recognize our context has changed. That except for the the rare example, most of us will live most of our lives among people and in places where God is not worshiped and scripture is not valued. And when we recognize this change, our communication changes with it. You and I, we shouldn't walk into spaces throwing Bible verses at people who don't care about scripture. Rather, we walk into spaces slowing down, observing, seeing people for people, seeing their needs, seeing their struggles, and providing solutions in Christ. And that's where I left us this morning. I got us about halfway through the book of Acts 17 or the chapter of Acts 17. And now I want to continue in that because Acts 17 has so much more for us that Paul in the first half modeled what it looked like in, in a new context to speak in a new way. But as we continue, he won't just model it. He will provide a mold for us to be able to replicate in our context. And he does that by answering three questions. The first one we'll answer tonight is who is God? The second one is, who am I? And the third one is, what do I do now? In these three questions, Paul gives us handholds in which we can use when we go into our secular context to be able to speak about our faith. And when you're in those secular contexts, when you're in the spaces like your workplace, or maybe it's your family, it's your friend group, when you're out in the community at restaurants and and at the gym or, or out at the grocery store, when you're in secular spaces, do you find it hard to talk about your faith? Like it might be difficult for you sometimes. That when you're at church or when you're at small group, when you're around other Christians, it's no problem. Jesus just, he, he flows off of your lips, right? But when you're in secular spaces, do you find it's hard for you to talk about Jesus and the faith that you hold? If I can be honest, I, it can be for me sometimes. Sometimes I will find myself in a secular space with someone I could talk to about Jesus. Someone who, who I feel like might be ready to, to have this religious conversation and to hear about Jesus. Like I find the spirit pushing me in that direction and sometimes I, I just find I don't know what to say. As the preacher who opens up God's word and communicates to rooms full of people pretty consistently Honestly, when I get out into the secular world, sometimes I find that I just don't know what to say in these conversations. And as I was studying Acts 17, and as I saw these three questions come to life, I felt like I was better equipped to talk about my faith. And so I pray today that you leave here feeling better equipped to talk about your faith. If you have a Bible, flip open to Acts 17. And as you do that, I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to open up your word, 
for the chance to read about Paul's faithfulness in the city of Athens, and I pray that you would speak to us through your word by your spirit. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. Paul then stood in, stood in the meeting of the Areopagos, and he said, People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Remember, Paul's in a secular context, in the city of Athens, in the marketplace, at the Areopagos, among people who don't already worship God. But he has noticed one thing. As he's been observing, he noticed that they still worship They are giving their lives in worship, their praise, their attention, their their gifts and their treasures. They're giving it to something. He's just recognized it's the wrong thing. And so they have a problem. And Paul wants to provide a solution to their problem. He wants to teach them about the one true God. And so he does it like this, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In this paragraph, Paul answers our first question, who is God? Who is God? It is the first and primary question that Paul answers in this secular context. He's starting to teach them who is God. It's the same question we should begin to answer when we step into our secular contexts. The reason is the secular world has got it wrong. We've talked a little bit about worship and how as humans we are hardwired to worship. There is something in us that we we have been created to worship. And when we don't worship the one true God, we spend that worship. We spend what is in us worshiping something else. Whether that be status, success, power, money, happiness, legacy, you name it. You can find it. People who give their lives to something, but it's the wrong thing. They worship, but in ignorance. They pour their time, their talents, and their treasures into a fictitious hope, wasting their life on faulty pursuits. Yet there's more for them. There's more for us. And we find that more in who God is. So Paul starts there. People need to know who God is. People need to know who the one true God is and how to worship him. And so Paul starts in the same place that the Bible starts as a whole. He teaches us, one, that God is creator. Genesis 1.1, the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing that God chose to reveal about himself is that he is creator. Before anything else, first and foremost, God is creator. Paul tells the Athenians that God made the world and everything in it. He tells them, God is is creator. He has made you and I and everything we know. Paul continues and he teaches number two that God is ruler. He says God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now lordship is a fairly 
uh, foreign concept to most of us, but it wasn't to the Athenians. They understood lordship. To be a lord meant you had power and authority. To, have, to be under a lord, to serve a lord, meant you submitted to their power and authority. So when Paul declares that God is lord, the Athenians knew he had power. He had authority. And they also knew that as servants of his lordship, they were under his power and authority. All of heaven, the whole of earth, everything under it finds itself under the rule and the reign of God. There is not a place you can go or a state you can be in that God is not ruler of all. There is nothing outside of God's command. Continuing, Paul says, God does not live in temples built by human hands. The Athenians had built massive, huge, beautiful, unparalleled structures to house their gods. They, they actually literally thought their gods lived in these stone statues and structures. And so they constructed them with, with oh, unbelievable beauty. But Paul looks at them and he sees these statues. And, he, and remember, he's walked the paths of the city of Athens. He's seen their worship, their idols. He says, God doesn't live in those. And when he does that, he's teaching them three that God is everywhere. Paul is crushing their idol worship by proclaiming God's vastness. He's everywhere. He's uncontainable. God does not live in stone or buildings. God does not fit into your perfect little box of what he, you assume he is. God does not contained within designated areas. God is bigger than that. Four, God is sufficient. Verse 25 says, he is not served by human hands, nor does he need anything. This might sound a little harsh, but God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. And the only reason that is true is because God doesn't need anything. He is completely and entirely sufficient on his own. So no, he doesn't need us. But, but the beautiful part of that is, is though he doesn't need us, he still chooses us. That a God who is sufficient all on his own has chosen to be in relationship with you and I. He has gone beyond what he needs and has invited us into relationship because we need it. God is sufficient. If we never worshiped him again, if we never gathered in a place like this again, if nobody gathered in a place like this again, if nobody worshiped God again, he would still be sufficient. But we are better off if we do because number five, God is generous. Paul says, God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Take a breath for me. Take another one, right? God gave you that. Each and every breath. He made your lungs that you could breathe. He made the air in a way that when we inhale and exhale, it actually gives us life. Somewhere between 12 to 16 times every single minute you draw a breath and every single one of those breaths is a reminder of your generous God. God is generous. Six, God is in control. Verse 26, it says that God marked out all the nations and appointed their times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. There has not been a single nation nor individual God who's not sovereign over. 
From the beginning of all creation until now, God has always been sovereign. And for the rest of history into eternity, God will always be sovereign. Forever and always, God is in control. And finally, if I can be honest, my, my bias, this one's my favorite, seven, God is near. Paul says God is not far from any one of us. The God who is creator, ruler, everywhere, sufficient, generous, and in control. He is near. He is all of those things, yet near to each and every one of us. He is, yes, creator, but he is also father and friend. He is close to those who draw near to him. He is intimate with those who pursue him. God is near to us. Isn't that amazing? The God who can be all of that, yet chooses to be with us. In one paragraph, Paul said all of that. Seven different characteristics for God. And when you find yourself in a secular context among people who don't know God, start by telling them who God is in a loving and understandable way, tell them who he is. Pick one of the seven that I just gave you that Paul gave us in Acts 17. Pick one and start there. Walk through them. Start to explain them. Start to to know them yourself. Or pick one of the bazillion other characteristics that God has that are good and perfect and amazing and holy. Pick one of God's characteristics and start to tell people about who he is. That's where Paul started. That's where we should start. When we've done that, we can start to address our second question. The second question is, who am I? It flows directly out of the first. We recognize people worship, but they don't always worship the one true God. And so we point them towards the one true God. And then we also recognize that people don't always know who they are. Who am I is a question of identity. It's, it's when we look to the depths, to the core of who, who we are, what do we find there? I challenge you to ask that of yourself. Who are you? How do you answer that question when you ask yourself or when others ask you? And then after you've explained some of who God is, I, I challenge you to ask others that. Ask them who they are. Who are you? Maybe frame it differently. What do you put your identity in? Who, what, what is your identity? Ask people this core question. And I think you'll notice that people often answer with roles rather than true identity. People say, I'm a student. Say, I'm an engineer. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a cook. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a girlfriend. I'm a boyfriend. I'm I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm I'm a friend. We start to tag in roles to fill identity. And the problem is that, we, is that we often don't recognize those roles as fragile. I've seen it play over and over and over again where someone loses that role and in the process they lose themselves. Someone graduates from college or grad school and they've been a student for 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years maybe And as they are no longer a student, they don't know who they are anymore. The person who's in a relationship or they're maybe even married and they they get dumped or divorced, 
And when they lose that relationship, they lose themselves and they, and they find that their life was so intertwined with another, they have no identity apart from that person. You find when someone puts everything they have into a job, it might be their, their favorite job, their best job, their dream job, but they pour everything into the job and the job is one day no longer there and in that same day they no longer know who they are. When we put our roles in something that's fragile, when we put our identity in something like a role that's fragile, it can be dangerous. That's why when we better understand who God is, we can better understand who we are. And we can answer like Paul does in verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Since God is creator, then we are created. God makes us who we are. In him we have life. In him we have value. In him we have purpose. We are his children who he loves and he cares for. In him we find an identity that is not fragile but is eternal. One that can never be taken away from us. One that will never fail. One that will always be with us for all of our days and never changing. Who am I? If you're in Christ, you are a child of the one true God. People need to know that. This truth not only gives people identity, but it also gives them intrinsic worth and divine purpose. Identity is a question that quickly launches us past just who am I and into why am I here? Do I matter? These are, these are core questions to what it means to live life, questions we believe God provides answers for. When it comes to intrinsic worth, as a child of God, there is nothing you can or cannot, there is nothing you can do that makes you any more or less valuable. In a society that is depressed and lonely and struggling and hurting, if we could speak to the need, what would it look like for us to tell them, hey, you are a child of God who has worth because your heavenly father loves you no matter how you perform? What would that do if people knew that? What would it do if they, if they knew that we didn't just love them, but their perfect heavenly father loved them forever? If people knew they had worth or go back to divine purpose, God has a beautiful plan for all people. So what if instead of fruitlessly pursuing a, a, a purpose in, in way after way after way and people finding at the end of their lives they never achieved their true purpose, what if instead we spoke up and we told them that God has a divine purpose for them, one in which they can know him and one in which they can help others to know him? A purpose that does not shift through the ages, but a purpose that is clear, a purpose that can be lived in whatever iteration of a role that you hold, a purpose that is eternal, that is divine, that gives us meaning for our lives. Who am I? Do I matter? Why am I here? These questions. And when we're in a secular context, people need to know who God is. And they need to know who they are. These answers meet the most basic needs of humanity. Start there. Before I move on to our final question, I want you, if you have a Bible, to open it up again to verse 28 and to look really, really, really closely for a second. Do you notice anything? When you read verse 28, do you notice anything different about maybe the rest of the chapter? 
I hope you notice that Paul is quoting some people there. I have a tendency when I read the New Testament, anytime I see there's quotation marks, I just assume it's scripture from the Old Testament, right? I know Paul loves scripture, so he's constantly throwing stuff in there. So I'll just jump to the bottom of my Bible to see the reference back to the the passage in the Old Testament. But if you do that for verse 28, you're going to notice something. Paul is not quoting scripture. Paul is actually quoting Greek philosophers, When he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, these aren't his own words. Paul borrowed those from the Cretan philosopher Epidemimus. Or when he says, we are his offspring, that's from the Cilician philosopher Artus. These are Greek philosophers, Paul's quoting. Secular people. People who don't worship God. People who don't value scripture. They're not Christians. They're not Jewish. They are Greek pagan philosophers. Yet Paul is quoting them and their words end up in our Bible right next to his. Yet remember how context is key and Paul is speaking to Greek people in Athens. Context is key. So Paul is quoting their own people in support of his ideas. He's using what they value, what they understand what they know to speak about his God. These aren't quotes from Solomon or David or Isaiah. Paul quotes secular people in secular context to highlight the truth of God. That's amazing. It's so, so impactful because they're already fluent in their context. And so he uses that. I remember about a year ago, I was talking to this youth pastor who told me he had just preached a sermon on Harry Potter. Now, I don't know if you know, but the church and Harry Potter don't always click very well, right? There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of opinions that get stirred up in this conversation. And so when he told me that he had preached a sermon on Harry Potter, I was shocked, right? I was like, brother, are you okay? Like, like, did you pray about this? Are are you sure? Like, you're you're, going to keep your job, right? Like, these were like serious questions. And he was like, no, I'm serious. I preached this sermon and it went great. And he began to explain to me why. And one of the things why it went, one of the reasons it went went so great is he said his students already knew Harry Potter. They knew the characters. They knew the plot. They knew the story. And and he went even beyond. They they didn't just know it. They valued it. They understood it. They, they, They intrinsically held worth in this story. Like the good guys, Harry Potter, Ron, Hermione, the, the, the students that he was preaching to loved those characters. They, they would have given their lives, it felt like, for these fictitious characters. And the bad guys, Voldemort, Draco, Snape, well, I guess I don't want to ruin too much. But yeah, like the bad guys, right, they, they despised them. They hated them. He could see his students like clench up and get tight when they would talk about these evil characters. And so he took what they already knew, what they already valued, and he redeemed it in a message for God's glory. Now, can I ruin Harry Potter for you for a second? Is that okay? Right. The whole series kind of starts when there is this bad character who becomes ultimately corrupt in his desire for ultimate power. Sounds kind of familiar. Then there is this chosen child who has a prophecy spoken about him about how he will overcome all evil. Sounds familiar. 
then that child is hidden in a, in, in a period of obscurity before he bursts onto the scene doing all kinds of miraculous acts. Guys, that's the New, that's the New Testament. And finally, this, this battle epitomizes these two characters, the, the battle between good and evil. Eventually, the chosen child will overthrow the evil one. How? He dies and he comes back to life. You, that is the gospel. <laughs> like, I'm about to sue on God's behalf for plagiarism. That's the gospel. The, the, the gospel is found in Harry Potter if we will look for it and we will, we will speak of the truth of God's redemptive glory. And before you get all mad or, or angry or get, get confused, that's what, that's what Paul did. He took people who had no business being in Scripture. He took people who had no, they should have been nowhere near his conversation about Jesus, yet he used their words to proclaim the truth of Jesus. What if we went carrying the gospel through Taylor Swift lyrics? I know we got some Swifties out there. You got three albums memorized. What if in some of those lyrics, you started to look for truth that could point back to who Jesus is? Right? She's singing about promises of hope and happiness and joy and purpose. And she's singing these things and you're, you're singing these things, but you're recognizing she's not really promising you truth, but you take what she is saying is truth and you point it back to what is God's actual truth. And you speak to a culture in a way they already know and value. Or if you're not into music, maybe you're into movies. And you go back to the great Marvel movies. And you find a line or a scene or a character and you say, I think, I think I recognize that, right? The moment Iron Man snaps his fingers and, and gives up himself, his sacrifice for the greater good of humanity. I hope you see that and you say, man, that reminds me of something. And you take what is the secular truth and you let it point you to God's truth. That's what Paul's doing. Finally, there is a third question. When we get into our text tonight, we've already talked about how people need to know God. They need to know who they are. And finally, they need to know what do I do now? This one is more straightforward than the first two. We could spend hours, I mean, all night, I could, could talk about how good God is and all of his different characteristics. At Oasis, we have spent the last four years in different iterations talking about identity. These are huge concepts that we could even barely cover in a night. But when it comes to question three, what do I do now? Paul answers this one succinctly in verse 30. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The ignorance Paul speaks of is their idol worship we talked about in verse 22. They worshiped but not God. And he overlooked that for a period, but not anymore. In God's kingdom, God is worshiped. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. He gets the honor. He is holy. Idol worship, giving our lives to something that is not God, is not allowed in his kingdom, and it's not what's best for us. Therefore, people need to repent and I know repentance is, is a scary word. I see some people tense up even when that word is thrown out there. 
that you maybe saw it on a billboard or you saw it on, on a TikTok or you, you heard it on the radio or, or you've seen it somewhere and you, and you feel like it was not used right or whatever your, your connotation of it is, I know that there can be this wall put up when the word repentance comes up. That for some of us, this word is straight up scary. But I want to encourage you tonight to not be scared of the power of repentance. That repent in its simplest form just means to turn. To turn. And so when Paul invites the Athenians to repent, he invites them to turn. To turn back to who God is. To turn back to who they are. I mean, this is why I love Paul. He is a genius communicator. He goes, one, know who God is. Two, know who you are. Three, go back to steps one and two. Do you see that? When you have forgotten one, when you have forgotten two, step three is go back to the basics. Who is God? Repent and go back to that. Turn back to God. Who are you? Repent and go back to that. Turn back to who you are. When we are ignorant in our worship, when we've forgotten who God is, our best course of action is to turn around. Go back. Realign yourselves with his truth. And I can tell you that's my experience. That there was a time not too long ago when I didn't know who God was. And I certainly didn't know who I was. That I was walking my life, living for myself, unsure of the whole Christianity and religion thing. And I had this group of people come alongside me. And they invited me to repent. And they didn't use those words because you probably don't even need to use those words. But they invited me in my life to turn back to who God was. They let me ask a lot of questions. And they answered those questions. And, and I asked them a lot of questions. Or, or they asked me a lot of questions. They looked at my life and they, and they asked me questions about some of the decisions I was making and some of the values that I held. And every time, even if it wasn't in the word repentance, they invited me back. Back to truth back to God, back to the core of who I was meant to be. This was the gift they gave me, repentance. And it is the gift we can give a secular world where people don't know who God is, where they don't know who they are. Could we invite them back? Could we tell them, hey, just turn around? They give me, the, those, those friends, they gave me a gift I now know who God is. I know who I am. I know I'm loved. I know I have value. I know I have purpose. I know that there is a savior who died for me, who is now my Lord, who I get to, to give my life in service to. I know these things. And it was a gift that they gave me. And so the gift that we can now give others is the same. My encouragement would be this. When you find yourself in secular spaces, and it's hard for you to talk about Jesus. You know you maybe should and you feel the, the, the spirit leading you too, but you just don't know where to start. I'd start with this. One, recognize your context. Context is key. Then, speak scripture in the context where it's appropriate. With other Christians, sharpen one another through God's word. And in secular spaces, see the needs. Slow down. Observe. Speak into those needs. Tell people who God is. Tell people who they are. And invite them to turn back to God's goodness. That's what Paul did. And it changed the world for Jesus. 
And that's what my prayer is too. Pray with me. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to gather around your word as your people. Thank you for Paul's faithfulness to preach this word, to teach to the Athenians that we might learn from him this to tonight. I pray that you would take us in boldness and send us out now to have actual conversations with people in our contexts. That we would tell them who you are. That you would remind us if we have forgotten who you are. That we would tell them who they are. That you would remind us if we have forgotten who we are. And God, in every area that we need to repent, would you help us? Would you give us the courage? Would you give us the bravery? Would you give us just the boldness to come back to you? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.